Once again, to the part threes that made us. Just kidding. <laughs> Third time's a charm, episode 75. Tonight, we are discussing Bruce Campbell versus the Army of Darkness. With me again, joining me from last month and from our show, The Monsters That Made Us, my co-host there, my, my horror consultant over here. Before that, please welcome the invisible Dan Cologne to the show. Hello. Hello, Mike. So glad to be back. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being back, Dan. You know, this is our hiatus from The Monsters That Made Us. This is light lifting. Yes. Anyone joining us from that show, barely any research, not nearly as much care and love goes into this show or has in the past few years as we put into the monsters that made us specifically Dan with his uh, in-depth research. I would disagree that more care goes into uh, our other show. I think this is just a different format. You're you're putting plenty of care into the, the, the movies that you cover here on Third Time's a Charm. Fair enough. I'll take it. At the end of the day, we come here to talk about stuff we love whether it's on the monsters that made us or here on third times a charm so that's that remains constant so as long as we're doing that i think we're doing okay yeah and so far we're doing good i think we're two for two and dan this was just brought to my attention i mean i didn't realize this when we were covering last month's psycho three but psycho three and army of darkness universal movies how about that (laughs) Honestly, not planned. You know, I just sent you a couple a couple choices, a couple things I hadn't covered yet, some horror monster specific stuff. But yeah, this is so such a nice surprise. That's true, because you did give me options and I chose based on personal taste, uh, you know, something that I had a connection with, didn't even consider the studio in either case, honestly. So it's funny that it worked out that way. And and I knew for Psycho 3, for whatever reason, I didn't mention it on the show. It didn't come up, but I put it in kind of the description um, when we posted online on the site and all of that. So I included it for people to know about in some form. But this was a surprise that the amount of times I've seen Army of Darkness and all the Evil Dead movies, I totally forgot and it popped up and my face lit up and I was like, awesome. Does that mean I could get like Ash the Monster Hunter one day? Or I mean, anything's possible. If ever Bruce Campbell were to come back and put on the chainsaw, perhaps it'd be to, you know, at least try to take out a Dracula. I think this is the only installment of this franchise that was released by Universal Studios. Yeah, because, I mean, I know that Sam Raimi, the writer-director, uh, the auteur of the uh, Evil Dead series, he uh, they have like that Rosebud Productions, right? And yes. uh, I know Dino De Laurentiis released most of their movies uh, in the States, and as well as this one had a hand in. So I'm not fully aware of what those movies were released under. I don't have them offhand here. But nevertheless, like I do remember seeing trailers for this in theaters as a kid. 
And I remember my good friend at the time, Joey, being like, not Joey Lewandowski, I, uh, but my other friend Joey, I had a lot of friends named Joey. He was like, "Oh yeah, this movie's supposed to have like the biggest skeleton army since Ray Harryhausen." And I, I kind of looked at him like, "I have no idea what you just said, but it sounds amazing." You know, I think <laughs> I was like eleven or twelve when this first came out. Anyway, it's always been um, like ever since I first saw it, it's been a fun time. But like, yeah, just this whole new sort of uh, part of the Universal Family thing just you know bumped it up a whole notch. Hell yeah! So Dan, before we get into Army of Darkness, uh, Bruce Campbell versus the Army of Darkness, the Medieval Dead, which oof, that's a title. Harken back, if you will, in your primitive mind, if possible, to uh, the day where you were first introduced, perhaps, to the Evil Dead series, and in which order or fashion you watched the movies. As I've I've, I've said this numerous times across this network, that I really kind of dove into horror and seriously once I got into college, probably my freshman year of college. Once I started getting into horror, I started buying up DVDs of like all the stuff that I knew were classic horror movies, you know, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, so on and so forth. And one of those movies was The Evil Dead. You know, I hadn't entirely decided that film was my going to be my major at that point, I don't think, or maybe it was early on. But it was only because I had an interest in movies. I didn't really know what kind of movies I wanted to make. But at the moment, I knew that I was really into just watching horror movies. And then I saw The Evil Dead, the original, and it like sparked something in me that like this is a style that I really love. I love this sort of DIY, low budget sort of thing. And it was really effective. Like I, I, I was able to see that just because they didn't have a whole lot of money that they could still be effective. Or it didn't mean it didn't mean that they couldn't be effective. And so I thought, this is perfect. This is what I want to do with myself. Things didn't exactly pan out that way for me, but I still love The Evil Dead. Uh, it has become my favorite, my number one favorite horror movie for that reason. I think it just hit me at the right time. And it might not be the best horror movie, but uh, it's the one that really just hit me at the exact right moment in my life and just stays with me. I even like it better than Evil Dead 2. A lot of people prefer Evil Dead 2. And I know, and I can absolutely see why I think Sam Raimi really starts to understand the balance between horror and comedy. And then here he's doing like full-blown comedy, but also like sword and sandal kind of adventure stuff here. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, condensed version of my Evil Dead history. Uh, I don't exactly remember when I saw Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, but I'm sure it wasn't long after I saw Evil Dead. I, I think I saw two before one and then was like a little confused, right? Because part two is kind of, um, it's like a part remake, part sequel. And yes. I love that about that. But uh, the first movie I will still contend is like genuinely scary. Like it still scares me. And like it has that feel and look and tone is almost as like this movie was shot and buried in the woods and no one was supposed to ever see it. Right. You know, it's like a feature length student film. There's no polish, but it's all this like production wise, like they know exactly what to do, but they have no money to do what they really need to do. But they do it anyway to the best of their abilities and it works. And it's entirely technique, you know, yeah. and and that's what I think was so great about it is that they were able to just use the art form to achieve the things they needed to achieve to make this movie successful because obviously they didn't have the money to do it. That is exactly what inspired me when I was how old? Uh, 19 years old, maybe. Raimi changed the medium with the way that he shot film. Him and the, like, the Coen brothers and, yeah. and like Barry Sonnenfeld, like, those guys, like they developed this technique and this style that we see 
to this day being, well, maybe not so much anymore, but like for a long time being mimed and, and mimicked and, and used to great effect. And, you know, it did wonders for Sam Raimi. And now it's funny because when we watch stuff like the new Doctor Strange movie, it's like, oh, that shot is straight out of, you know, this Sam Raimi movie. Oh, or like, oh, he did that. And it's so Raimi-esque. And it's become like a term now in, in the Hollywood lexicon, which is awesome. Absolutely. And and what's funny to me is that my introduction to Sam Raimi was Spider-Man. And then I saw The Evil Dead and got like really into this franchise. And then I went back to watch Spider-Man and I thought, holy shit, Sam Raimi is all over Spider-Man. I just didn't know who Sam Raimi was. Yeah, there's that terrific sequence in part two, especially when Doc Ock is on the operating table. Yep. It's like, you know, there it is. It's like if you ever needed a thesis statement, uh, it's right there all in that sequence. But I also love this movie so much as well like because or it's like we we're talking about like the first one it's they're pretty much going for horror like there is comedic moments and levity but in so much as there is in like night of the living dead like it's there mm-hmm. but it's more about like comedy of manners in the situation it's like because ash is in this situation like he's losing his mind so like certain things are going to be quirky and weird but i feel still that it's pretty much played straight the second one has that like equator it's like the perfect balance it's like right on the line it's like this is what you do if you want to split it between like one second you're laughing and you feel safe and the next second you're screaming and you feel insecure like you don't know what to do this one is sort of full-blown three stooges yes uh, looney tunes but i i think i cracked the code i mean it's wrestling. Yeah. Like, this is a wrestling pay-per-view. I can 100% see that. Yeah. It's hilarious when I started thinking it in that context. But I also love how it plays on so much literary iconography, I guess, of the medieval period where it's just like I buy the concept of demons and dragons and monsters a little more than in modern day. So that like I feel the Deadites and the Necronomicon and all this and the wizard and stuff like sort of feels a little more like... I feel a little more at ease with that than I do stuck in a cabin sometime. Well, you're you're a comic book guy. You've established that. This very much feels like a Conan the Barbarian comic, but oh, yeah. with Ash instead of Conan. That's a great call, too. I was thinking uh, Kid in King Arthur's Court, right? But sure. it's like man-child in right. King Arthur's Court. I didn't really consider it in the same terms as the original because they're just so far apart. In that way, it's almost like Superman 1 and Superman 4 of the original Reeves series. It's yeah. like, yeah, you know, they're from the same sort of cloth, but they're trying to do completely different things at this point with the material. Or it's sort of like we've seen with certain Universal monsters. By the time we get to part three and four, it's like they've really gone off in a different direction and, and tried to stretch the worth of, of that concept. Yeah, and, and to connect it to another Universal movie and another movie we've talked about on this show, I, I was reminded of like Back to the Future Part 3. Yeah. Where they take this thing, these characters that you like in... Army of Darkness's character is just Ash, but you know they take these characters and put them into an entirely different environment. You know they put them into a western, and I I got to be honest with you, um, I think that that I, I appreciate Back to the Future Part Three and what they were trying to do with that more than I appreciate Sam Raimi taking Ash and the Deadites and putting them into the into medieval times and making it a full comedy. I mean we can get into the into the why of it in a, in a bit if you want, but I understand the impulse to to say okay we've done this thing twice now, what do we do? Let's try something entirely different. I should say that I do really like Army of Darkness. I think that it's maybe peak Sam Raimi. This is him like fully unleashed, right? He has perfected his style by this point. Well, it's interesting, like after... I feel like after this, he goes into sort of a more serious era of 
of his movie making. I mean, he'll make The Quick and the Dead with Leo. Uh, and oh, sure. Like yes. Crow, and that's got a huge cast, actually. Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman. You know, that's a that's a big one. But then he'll do stuff like The Gift, the Keanu, Keanu's in that. Yep, um, yep, yep. And A Simple Plan, you know, like smaller kind of stuff than you would expect. He's kind of, he did some golf. Didn't he do some baseball movie with Kevin Costner? You know, yes. he, he did a whole string of films that it feels like, okay, can I apply this to more than a fantastic premise you know more than dark man more more than demons right like will my style do my taste translate into these other genres and i'll tell you what i think for the most part those movies are extremely successful films yeah like i love the quick and the dead it's such like a american spaghetti western uh, a simple plan is gripping billy bob and bill paxton and everyone in that it's like a it's like an actor's movie it's almost like a play the gift may maybe not like the most successful of those films but like still Kate blanchett keanu as i mentioned <laughs> so like still enticing uh maybe the closest to it's like a ghost story mm-hmm. to his other stuff but then he's very well-rounded and because i feel like he's dwelled so long in the evil dead world he might be kind of thought of as just you know the horror guy or maybe even the superhero guy at this point but it's like kind of remarkable how like he can kind of do whatever he wants he did tv as well if i'm not mistaken didn't he do um uh, hercules or xena or both oh yeah yeah both yeah Yeah. xena xena was his pet project i believe for a long time he's he liked to stay in that sword and sorcery kind of world for a little while it seemed absolutely so speaking of sword and sorcery let's get into a bit about this movie dan which cut did you watch because there's four of them so i have the shout factory or i should say scream factory blu-ray that they put out Mm -hmm. i think within the past 10 years it's got three of the versions that there are right i'm not aware of a fourth version so if you look on the slip cover or the back and you go down to disc three on the international cut there is actually they pulled the same shit they did with the fucking criterion godzilla box set (laughs) edition dan we were talking about godzilla versus King Kong, which yep. is the third Godzilla movie. And this is very similar to that. If you go to disc three, the international cut, a special feature is the televised version. Television version in standard definition full screen. It runs 90 minutes. So here are the official run times. Theatrical version, 81 minutes. Director's cut, 96 minutes. International cut, 88 minutes. Television cut, 90 minutes. Interesting. Kind of absurd. If I recall, the Evil Dead DVDs got the most represses because they just kept coming out with new copies with extra features. So, like, it's kind of hilarious, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, I watched the original theatrical cut, the 81 minute cut, and then um, I was able to squeeze in the director's cut. And because I, I was really interested in, in watching that with the commentary by uh, Sam and Bruce and Ivan Ramey. So, I was able to watch those two. So, if, if I'm not sure which scenes made it into the theatrical cut or what might be in the international cut or I'm sorry into the director's cut that's why I watched both of them today yeah I watched both of those and I've never seen the international cut and I've never seen the tv cut I should really remedy that so I watched the theatrical the directors and the international cut Uh, I managed to squeeze because I started watching these like a week and a half ago so like I did like one a week I gotta say I have a favorite I think well there's an ideal version in my mind I think the international cut plays the smoothest but it's missing a line or two that I like from other versions I Mm. think most likely that it's in the theatrical cut and then the director's cut has the best ending 
Yes. Somewhere in here, there's a fifth cut that I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna just imagine in my mind. I'm not, I'm not gonna promise. I'm gonna put it together on YouTube or anything. But like, that's sort of where I fall. Like, I feel like if you're gonna watch a version, I feel like the international cut just, just gets right to it. And maybe the, it may be the least kind of funny maybe if you want to go that direction you know like it, it sure it dwells the least at the uh windmill for sure it it kind of like glides over the windmill as as much as possible that whole sequence oh that's interesting i just feel the director's cut has everything and the kitchen sink like the battle sequence is kind of too long and gags maybe run an extra shot or two or something like that um especially that end battle i feel like runs a little too long but yeah so that's that's crazy that we each watched at least two versions of this movie i mean having seen the director's cut and the ex like the was it 15 minutes of extra footage something like that i do think that the the theatrical cut is mostly better i think some of the stuff that was cut out of the director's cut was worth cutting out i'll think some of it especially in the battle sequence it just extends this battle sequence that kind of goes on forever but I, I wish that the original ending had been kept intact for that original theatrical cut you know what i mean like that's yeah, really yeah. the only thing that i would re- truly change about that version yeah so i mean just for the sake of it for anyone listening we'll just skip directly to that and come back but like the ending of this movie ash well i'll just quickly i mean why not i'll just go through the plot real quick but ash after the last movie has landed in medieval times due to uh unleashing the power of the necronomicon and now he is like captured by by these knights and brought to their castle and thrown in a pit and it's seen that he can fight these deadites and he claims to be from the future so they send him on a quest to get the book but he kind of screws up brings it back without performing the words that he was supposed to recite correctly unleashes the army of the deadites and they have a huge battle and at the end they send him back to when he came like modern day like he's basically the end of the movie he's back working at his job at smart and the deadites attack and it's like okay that's the big cliffhanger next time it's like we're maybe we're gonna be held up at smart it's gonna be like the mist or something like that but the director's cut in the end the wizard concocts a potion from the necronomicon gives it to ash and says to recite the same three words exactly again and he doesn't he screws up he drinks the potion he falls asleep and wakes up way later than he was supposed to in the distant future where the army of the deadites have apparently taken over the entire planet and it's going to be ash in the future fighting the evil dead yeah who who doesn't want that ending also what's funny is it looked kind of like a turtles in time scenario where like all of the wonders of the world were gathered oh yeah in in one place as if someone stole them and like collected them somewhere it almost looked like one of those buildings was like it looked like one of the buildings from blade runner like one of those futuristic la skyscrapers yeah yeah it was probably just like a temporary match shot of of like a collage that yeah meaning to replace but still conceptually i think yeah the best ending i think the studio tried to say that that ending tested poorly but i think there's a part of me that believes that it was like one of the executives that just didn't like that ending and wanted the happier ending it is the happy ending and that is sort of like a disease in hollywood right and there's so many movies brazil comes to mind especially where the the happy version of the movie and the happy ending and all this kind of shit and like it's funny that the end they think this is the happy ending in a way like it's not that much it's not like happier in the sense that they're okay like the deadites are still coming 
I just felt like if I was a studio head that didn't really, that was, that was kind of lukewarm on the property, right? That was kind of like, all right, this is what you did. I, you've got like, really, you went to, you know, the Halloween store and got skeletons. <laughs> okay. Like, I think it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but I, I'm playing the executive, right? And, and I'm leaning back in my chair and I'm like, there's no way we're doing another one of these anytime soon. You know, like we got to somehow, we got to figure out a way to write our way out of this, you know? And so if Sam Raimi is, is turning in his first cut and it's got that future Ash waking up in the future, like that just is a cliffhanger and it screams, you know, part four is on its way. If you go with the one we got at Smart, where he's basically, like you say, like Conan, like he literally ends in that Conan pose with the girl, like posing with him and like saying like hail to the King and all that stuff. Like it has a more conclusive ending, you know, it's more definitive. I feel. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that, that universal is necessarily interested in making another one of these. They were, they were only so invested. I think half, Half the budget came from Universal. The rest of it was Dino De Laurentiis and uh, his company, and then Sam and, and Bruce and, and Rob Tappert. They they all put in, I think, a third of the budget themselves. We're lucky we got this movie. We're lucky that Universal even gave them half their budget, right? So if it wasn't for that, maybe we don't get Army of Darkness at all. On some level, you know, we have to be grateful that Universal was involved, but at the same time, I think when it came to that theatrical cut, I, I don't know that they really understood the property because they 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 refer to it as like a downer ending and anybody who has seen evil dead and evil dead 2 i think would know that it's not a downer ending it is like the appropriate ending for ash you know what i mean like ash is never going to be done fighting these demons right he's always going to be fighting demons no matter what he doesn't really get a happy ending that ending is fine it's it's iconic now i guess the quote unquote alternate ending that they decided to go with the happy ending it establishes a lot of like famous one-liners a lot of what we know or what we think of about ash comes from that ending so it is what it is but to call the original ending a downer ending i think is a little bit inaccurate it's actually kind of crazy like the talent involved behind the screen here and it makes me wonder i I wish i had I wish I had done a bit more research on this one. Now thinking about how interested I am in the backstory, all these multiple cuts, like I would love to talk to Bob Morawski, the editor, and get his take on it. Yeah, I have all these special features I'll dive into now. But some more talent behind the screen here that I popped up, Danny Elfman. With the yes. Theme. Yeah. So I, I mean, he did some Spider-Man movies as well, but around this time, like this was sort of before he was doing everything. He was already working with Burton by this point. The director's cut incorporates more of Danny Elfman's music. I think that's one of the things you do get from that longer cut. There's just more scenes. And right before the battle, when the when the skeleton army is is amassing outside of the castle, there's like it's it's a long sequence. Lots of different types of skeletons and demons and things. And yeah. Sam is just kind of like doing one gag after another. And a lot of really cool shots in there, like um, effect shots that involve puppets. There's some stop motion animation. There's guys in suits, all kind of in the same shots. I don't like Bob Murawski. I don't know how he edited this movie together because there, there's so many effect shots and he did an incredible job. But yeah, a lot of that Danny Elfman score is around that bit of the movie i believe i just wish there was more of it in the theatrical cut i think like i said i think that suffered a little bit i love the gag where the skeleton is playing the flute made out of a skeleton bone it made me wonder if that was one of his own bones that whole sequence i mean not just the the lead up to it but the battle itself he does a similar thing where he's creating all of these little like moments right Uh, sam i mean yeah specific deadites like the one plays a flute this guy does this this other one does that they're all unique and then during the fight they have these like great action set pieces like 
like I think that everything in that scene is fun. It's all really fun and uh, impressive on a lot of levels. It's just there's too much of it. I don't ever get bored. That's not the issue. It's just, yeah, Sam's one of those guys. I think he's just a, a bottomless pit of ideas. I think you're right. You're right. And in, in a film opportunity like this where he's able to just like cut loose with the director's cut you see just how far he can go sometimes without any guidance perhaps and it might be a little too far but i feel like there's a certain balance that they do attain and achieve the in the theatrical and international cut that is way more enjoyable yes and, and just plays more smoothly and if you listen to him on the commentary track he kind of understands that now i think in hindsight he looks back on that director's cut and realizes like maybe this is a little too long or maybe i should have cut that you know or maybe it was a good idea for the studio to have cut this out it's not like he's gonna full-on defend all that extra content one of my favorite parts of this movie is since we're talking about the skeletons is when they're starting to dig each other up and there's this one guy wakes this other one up and he's like welcome back to the land of the living here's a shovel now start digging (laughs) it's it's so pirates of the caribbean you know it's just like that's what kind of comes to mind to me too towards the uh climax is like oh i'm at disney world or something or like i'm at great adventure and this is like just a theme park ride at one point where Mm -hmm. especially when the ashmobile comes flying out you know that, that totally feels like something you would see at like a stunt spectacular show I was just about to say it felt like a stunt show. One of the things I like about those early Sam Raimi movies is that it's probably because they had no money. But it's one of the things that I love is that they all look like they're movies on sets. It wasn't until much later that uh, they started really using a lot of more CGI and, and trying to make everything look more realistic. But I love the fact that this movie looks like it was all shot on a soundstage. And I think some of these scenes from the commentary were shot like in a storage unit. Because you know what? You've seen my student film. If not, you can go to my YouTube channel and I've made it public at this point. But I shot in a storage unit (laughs) without telling them. But like I rented a storage unit at the time to just like bring a lot of stuff from my house. And and I was like, you know what? Going to use this. Anyway, you know, the effects are amazing. We should mention at least that there can be effects. Yeah. Like the ultimate crew at the time, I think they were, I'm not sure at the time they were as well renowned as they are, you know, these days and everything, but like there is a behind the scenes footage from KMB effects Inc. that I am going to watch as soon as we're done recording that I noticed on this disc. So they basically pull out every trick in the book. Like you can see their love of everything from like Harryhausen to mm-hmm. Jim Henson. Yep. You know, like it's all here. It's all used in a very calculating way. One of my favorite instances of this is during the battle when Evil Ash and his queen Deadite are like up on the mound and, and two riders approach. Okay. And one of them is a dude dressed up as like a demon with mm-hmm. an eye patch and like a milky white eye. And he's clearly a dude in makeup. And the next guy on the horse next to him is a skeleton. Right. Puppet. Okay. And who do they have deliver the news from the front? The skeleton puppet. Okay. And like, that is exactly why I love this fucking movie. (laughs) He knew that would be the more absurd, but like the more true to the story. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a childlike energy running through this whole movie. And that's just pure Sam. You know, I think he's a big goofball. He throws Three Stooges bullshit into all of his movies, it seems, uh, somewhere. Here's sort of what I was saying before, is that I love Army of Darkness. I think that it's maybe a perfect Sam Raimi film, or as, as, as close as one might get. However, it is not really one of my favorite Evil Dead movies, if that makes sense 
Yeah, there's a there's a lot of them at this point. There's what five? I think yeah, I think it just it pulls away from horror too much for me. You know, like okay. when I want Evil Dead and Ash fighting demons, I want sign up more horror. This is more adventure. I hear you. I think I like it for that reason is that I don't think it's that it's not horror, but like it's almost more like Clash of the Titans. Right. Yeah. Or something. And I love Clash of the Titans. So maybe that's my bias is that like, that's a movie from my childhood that I watch frequently still one of my maybe top 10 despite its flaws. And so, yeah, I can understand that criticism. I can see it and agree with it, but I don't feel it, if you know what I mean. I totally get where you're coming from with that. I almost kind of want to know what this movie could have been if it wasn't about Ash, if it wasn't an Evil Dead sequel, if it was just like Sam Raimi doing a like a Conan kind of oh. movie. I was thinking the other way, what if they remade this next in the Evil Dead? <laughs> they, they threw a character from the last movie back into the past, and they took it, no pun intended, dead seriously. You could explore all of the terrible things that were like going on with humanity during medieval times through the Evil Dead series or something. Sure, yeah, I think I don't th- I don't think the change of environment was was the issue. Uh, I think it's just that it not only does that, but it pulls so far away from the horror of the original movie. You know what I mean? Evil Dead Two still felt like a horror movie, even with the silly gags. Here, it feels like full fledged comedy in the medieval times, and then we've got these demons because we kind of have to because it's an Evil Dead movie. It's it's almost like he found your uncle's joke book instead of the Necronomicon. Kinda, yeah. At the end of the day, I still really love this movie. I, you know, like it, it's just when I want Evil Dead, this is not the first or second or third one that I reach for. What's even crazier is like how scary this could be without some of that cheeky stuff or some of that, um, I guess, campiness. I guess if I had sort of one issue with the way the comedy is treated is like, it's only for the audience and Ash, like none of the people around him basically understand what the hell he's talking about when he makes a joke. Okay. You could take all that shit out and the movie would still pretty much work on its own. The only thing you'd have to leave in is some of like the insults because he is a big dick in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like he's kind of a dick character for a lot of it, right? I mean, he gets called out about it too. I think you could make it a horror movie, like a like a true horror movie and still keep the skeleton army. I think the skeletons are are amazing. Yeah, because I, even in this movie in the direction it does take with the comedy, it totally earns the end. It's not like they show up and you're like, what, this now? No, it's been built, it's like clearly been building to something like this, kind of hodgepodge of effects and, and this insane idea. And I love just, again, the spirit of it, or maybe they don't quite have the technical prowess. It's very much like the original, right? Like, it's just like they execute it the best they can. They really went ambitious with the setting, though, and the sets and the effects work. Still operating on a, on a very, very tight budget. I do love that they took a big, bold swing, just tried something that was wildly different. I do think that it largely works. Yeah, so I don't mean to sound too critical, because it's really not necessarily a criticism of the movie. It's more so just that uh, I want to certain thing out of evil dead most of the time but this one works as a sword and sandal uh or a sword and sorcery kind of adventure film with star- you know starring ash and some some deadites yeah now it's going up on the shelf closer to like my jason and the argonauts and like my simbad and the seven seas and stuff like that like yeah i i, I like that a lot I'm a big Harryhausen fan, so I mean, like this speaks on speaks to me on so many levels. Yo, so I also didn't realize that Bill Pope was the DOP. 
I was waiting for you to get to that. Yes. And that it's his third movie. Yes. And that his next movie is going to be Fire in the Sky. That operating table scene is just like nightmares. I didn't even know he shot Clueless. Man, I cannot believe that the same man who shot The Matrix shot Army of Darkness. That's where I first knew him from, was behind the scenes footage of The Matrix. And I'm like, well, if he's shooting The Matrix, I got to keep an eye on his name and at least learn it. And yeah, it's wild that he started on Darkman with Sam Raimi as his first film. That's that's really amazing. And then he, he did some other really incredible stuff too. Like, you know, he worked with Edgar Wright on Scott Pilgrim, The World's End and, and Baby Driver. Like, well, yeah, he shot Ant-Man and the Wasp and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. So now he's a Marvel guy. His stuff, for the most part, like, they looks amazing. Like, his stuff always looks great. He probably uh, pulled every trick in the book to help this out. Like, there's a lot of great shadow play in this movie. There's a lot of shit, like, when the Deadites, you know, when they take someone over and there's, like, the two or three witches in this that floating and do the crazy camera work and everything. There's the amazing hand-making montage. Yep. That's, like, filmmaking 101. Just, just check that out. Yeah, I mean, you can draw a straight line from that to Edgar Wright when he made Shaun of the Dead. Raimi was doing that also in Evil Dead 2 as well in terms of like the quick cut montage with the zooms. When I think about Army of Darkness, okay, so now I'm like thinking about how this does make sense, right? So he worked on Army of Darkness. We know how many special effects shots are in there. I mean, there's a lot going on. There's process shots. There's stop motion. We talked about it all. In a way, it does make sense that a guy with that kind of ingenuity and experience early in his career would be in a place by 1999 or, you know, 97 when they made it, but to, to make the Matrix, you know, because considering how much innovation was happening on a technical level, he's the guy who had to work on Army of Darkness. So, of course, he can think outside the box. He's going to be the guy who's going to figure out interesting, weird ways, creative ways to solve these problems that they have, get the shots they need. So, yeah, in a weird way, when I when I look back at it in hindsight, it does Kind of makes sense to have this guy shoot the Matrix. You know what else makes sense is that he shot the Wachowskis' first film, Bound. Have you seen Bound? It's pretty. It's a pretty good crime noir from like the mid '90s. Like it really became like its own thing as I'm watching it. But that's a really cool movie, and it looks really amazing. And that's one of the main things I remember from that. I'll have to check it out. I've never seen it, um, but I did just notice it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Well, there's the link. So, Dan, did you notice one of the locations, one of the real locations they visited and that Bill Pope got to shoot in this movie? And I wonder if he, like everyone else on the set, was having a great day that day. Are you referring to Vasquez Rocks? I most certainly am. (laughs) You know, I know you've been watching a lot of Trek lately, so I figure by now, you know, what's up with them. Unmistakable. They're unmistakable. Much more mistakable than when we saw them. What what movie were they in? The Mummy or the fucking one of those wolf? We saw it in uh, Werewolf in London when they're Werewolf in, in London. It doubled for Nepal. That's right. That's right. I was I was racking my brain, but I was like, I knew we've been here before. I love that he got to shoot that there. It's such a fun location. And, you know, it's one of those things that, like, you know, so many productions from TV to movies have have used Vasquez Rocks. Like, is it a cliche to use it? I don't give a shit. Every time I see it, I'm excited. Yeah, and what's really cool about it this time is that I've never seen it with, like, the road. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they basically just dressed the road a little so you couldn't see tire marks or anything. But, like, the very sort of famous ones from Star Trek are on one side of the road. And then there's, like, very interesting ones on the other other side of the road and and ash is on the horse and he's going down the street sort of on a on a wide shot that's just like straight on and you see him cross the horizon and it just looks very interesting to see it out of frame or off frame 
just a bit because they're always dead center. Yes. Me. Yeah. They, they did shoot it in a way that I've never seen it shot before. You're right. It, usually you get that iconic outline, that silhouette is in the background. Here, we're kind of like at a, at a strange angle. Yeah. Almost as if they wanted to say like, you know, if you know it, that's cool, but we're not trying to sell it as as this. because it, And certainly not like in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, like they basically recreate Star Trek that moment with the Gorn. There was another location that if you didn't listen to the director's commentary, you may not be aware of. In the original ending, when they pack Bruce away in that cave and they uh-huh. in the car and he takes the, uh, the potion. So that cave is none other than the Bat Cave. Oh, the the, the Adam West Bat Cave. Yeah, that's the oh same God, cave Dan. where the Batmobile would come driving out. Yeah. And this is insane. When you and I podcast, for whatever reason, Batman 66 just can't help itself but impose on our life. And this is insane because it's like not an actor, okay? It's the fucking Bat Cave itself yep. that was in this movie. I don't even know... If I know how to reply to this, <laughs> that's such a great tidbit. Like, I'm going to write a book one day. There's just everywhere anyone that's been in Batman has been in before. Everything but Batman. You know, it's just like other movies <laughs> that use those locations or other actors who've done episodes of Batman. But it, yeah, that'd be awesome. Wow, that that's a great tidbit. I, I did not know that. As soon as I heard that fact, I was like, I got to tell Mike. I'm going to save that for the pod. Now I really wish that ending was in the theatrical version. Man, but we're starting to get to the end here a little bit. I want to start talking about maybe if we had some uh, standout moments in the film we haven't talked about before. I just want to briefly mention the part in this movie I feel is like the least successful that always kind of bothers me. Sure. (laughs) Much as I try to love it is the windmill sequence. And I know from having listened to the commentary in the past that Sam also had like difficulty in figuring this out. I just wish they thought of some other way aside from the kind of uh, Gulliver's travel angle that they went with, with the little micro ashes running around, jumping out of the mirror and everything. Yeah. Part of me just wishes that like his hand grew back evil and kept growing because I don't mind the idea of evil ash coming from him, like splitting in half. I just, I don't know. It's a combination of the effects and the kind of like over humorous part of it right like it's it's, it's a little too looney tunes he's basically running around with like cartoon mice and trying to catch them it's like tom and jerry time yeah and the director's cut it's longer and it does feel unnecessarily long there's like all these little extra beats it's like like i said sam had all these ideas and he really wanted to incorporate everything and 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 to his credit they are funny sequences but I kind of agree with you in that it is the weakest section of the whole movie, even even in the original theatrical cut. I think overall, it's just, it's an unnecessary detour, and I just don't really love it as much as I love everything else in the movie. I would have liked them to visit, is it Eric the Red? His, him and his army? Yes. Like, it would have been interesting if Ash had gone to him at some point instead of the windmill he like gets diverted to their castle and has to kind of go through the short version of what's going on and they cast him out and then he goes to the graveyard and deals with the three books and i'd be i'd be kind of cool with that yeah the, i mean we do need to get the sort of deadite king somehow right we have to have ash multiply in some way i thought maybe the book could have done that by picking it up incorrectly it doesn't kill the whole movie for me 
No, 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 no. Some of the worst effect shots are in that sequence as oh, well. Oh, dude, dude, there's one of the worst when when they're holding the two of them are holding his, uh, his nose, nose closed, shut. So, yep. Yeah, and so his mouth could open and one dives in. It's real dodgy. I don't love that. I watched it twice today, and I I just didn't even the second time. I thought, no, it's worse this time. I noticed like how they did it. I guess they used like a green screen, and then they cut like a slit in it, and so that Ash could fall in and be hidden by the screen you know like you can sort of see how they cut the fabric and then he just falls right behind it it's not great like because there's a a lot of other effects in here that look practical but i i don't care this is the one where i'm like ah yeah he's got to do better than that takes me out of the movie (laughs) i i guess that's why it's because it's the only time where i'm i can't believe i'm saying this but i couldn't suspend my disbelief like too obvious i guess too obvious so that's the only scene that i don't really love as much as everything else but i would also like to say that I, I also don't love that Ash almost immediately loses his chainsaw hand. I miss the chainsaw hand. Yeah, yeah. So he has it in the pit, which is an amazing. That's that's such a great sequence. Like when yeah. and the guy falls in the pit, and there's a beat, and then there's just that gusher. Geyser, oh, yeah. Oh my god. Holy moly. That's terrific. But I also love the battle. I love how he comes out of it, and he's sort of Mister Badass, you know. And they have to listen to him, and he's that's where he's doing like a Hulk Hogan impression, where he's like, he's like, "What'd you say? What?" And he's got like his hand up to his ear, and he's like, "You yep. want some?" But the the chainsaw comes back at one point, doesn't it? Not really, because as soon as that happens. It's it's not long after he starts figuring out how to like create the mechanical hand. The posters for this movie have the chainsaw hand. I don't know. I just think it's such a cool, wacky idea that I, I miss it. Once he loses it and it's not there for the rest of the movie, I'm just wishing he had a chainsaw hand. That's weird. I thought he had it at some point in the battle, but maybe I just imagined it. I know I know at the end he picks up like the machete. They could have explained it maybe that there's no gasoline in medieval times, so it would be impractical. No, 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 because he has his chemistry book. That's true. They now know how to do all that shit. (laughs) They invent that stupid car using a chemistry book. They don't just invent that. They get the car going again. So like they must have gas of some kind or some very hard liquor. They add like the propeller blades instead of just making an airplane or some or like a helicopter, <laughs> which would have been amazing. I guess the budget in real world didn't a lot for that. But they also learned how to make the exploding arrows, right? Gunpowder and, and that kind of stuff from the book. So I wish they played up a little more how the chemistry book is like the good Necronomicon. <laughs> like it's filled with facts and science and stuff that works and the Necronomicons all like spells and evil and chance. Yeah, that would have been fun. But yeah, okay. I, I guess in hindsight, there's really no reason why Ash couldn't have kept his chainsaw hand. I agree. I guess I, maybe the I, maybe the concept was we did it in the last movie. That's where it belongs. You get a little taste of it here, and he's evolved now into his you know robot hand. He's he's Luke Skywalker now. I don't. Know, is there is there anything we left out that you would like to mention before we start wrapping up? As we talked about on uh, our Back to the Future Part Three episode that the way that that movie was a successful western i feel like this is a successful sword and sorcery type adventure movie you know what i mean it it doesn't fail at that it takes all the stuff we like from evil dead and then translates it into this different style of movie and i think sam shows here that he is capable of handling different genres outside of horror you know and that's that's also why i have a hard time really being hard on it you know what i mean like i i don't want to be hard on this one it's just like i said not the one I reach for when I want Evil Dead. And the the jokes are really funny. It's all one-liners. Everything we know and love about Ash Williams like kind of comes from this movie. If you've ever seen Evil Dead the musical, like most of the dialogue comes from 
Army of Darkness. Yeah, the, this is my boomstick. Hail to the king. Give me some sugar, baby. Depending on which version, good, bad, I'm the guy with the gun. This did a lot for the franchise, and it certainly did a lot for Ash as a character, because Ash in that first movie is is kind of barely a character. Uh, he, he sort of evolves into this loudmouth braggart. Yeah, isn't he? Weren't they saying he's like the last girl in Evil Dead? And even his name, Ashley, even though it's technically a unisex name, the, the idea of his name being Ashley is also more like coded female, and his character, again, being the lone survivor, question mark. Yeah, could be. I don't know if I've ever heard that explicitly stated, but I, I would buy it. I didn't read that anywhere. I just am sort of yeah. supposing that in my own kind of like, I'm just thinking that now, actually. I, I think it makes sense. Oh, before I forget, I just wanted to point out that uh, Bridget Fonda is in this movie. Yeah, she'll go on to be in a few Sam Raimi uh, films. She's in A Simple Plan. I also forgot that M. Beth Davids is in this. I don't know her from a ton of stuff, but I know people my age will remember her uh, from Matilda. Like, that's, that's her iconic role. I know people are always pretty shocked when they come to this later and see her in it being like, wait, there's like a real actor in here? Yeah, and I, and I think that's part of why I think this movie is a really great adventure movie. Because Ash is like this goofy man out of time. But everybody else in this movie is like a real actor playing real medieval characters. It's like he was pulled into a completely separate movie. I do love that. The commitment to the bit, you know, like that's how it feels. The, the idea that no one around him is ever going to break. Like he, they're all the straight man. It's yes. like he's just, it's an audience that won't laugh at him. That was good casting. Just putting people like M. Beth Davids, Ian Abercrombie as the wise man, like just these, yep. these, these humorless self or yeah, self-serious performers. And uh, even the guy who plays Duke Henry, the red Richard Grove, he's great. They're all in the same movie. And then Bruce Campbell gets pulled in and he's this like bull in a China shop almost. Uh, so I love that energy. I don't know that I have a whole lot else to say. Army of Darkness is a classic. It's wild okay. to me that I know people who saw this before they had even heard of Evil Dead. Like people just watched this one out of context and still enjoy it, right? That's crazy. I would say like compared to most series, like, yeah, that is a little nuts. Like like I watched two first, but two, like I mentioned, is kind of like a remake. Like it, you know, it's one of those like, well, most people probably haven't seen part one. It's also the only franchise I know of that, not anymore, but like there's three movies and like there's just there's two recaps you know what i mean like were they going to do a recap with every movie it could be because they just with each movie they got progressively like more distribution and so now suddenly yeah. with army of darkness universal is going to distribute so now they're going to have like the entire country watching this thing yeah i think that that's a major thing too because we're already in like the rentals era so like people are you know they they could go rent part one and part two and and then watch this in the theater that weekend if they wanted to this is definitely more for the like people who've never heard of this kind of stuff and we're we're trying to reach a broader audience and casting a wider net with this one to bring in people so well i also wonder if it's just a sample Raimi thing because he recaps those Spider-Man movies in the opening credits with those awesome uh, Alex Ross drawings. I think they're Alex Ross. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. It could be, uh, yeah, then it could be a Sam Raimi thing. We've been spared those recaps for the uh, the 2013 Evil Dead and then Evil Dead Rise because they have nothing to do with Ash. So. Oh, so on that note, all right. So did you see, this is kind of timely because there has been this year a new Evil Dead movie. Did you see the new Evil Dead movie? 
I did, yeah. I didn't see it in theaters. I waited until it came to streaming, but I did see it. So I really liked the 2013 uh, Fetty Alvarez Evil Dead remake, uh, or I guess it's sort of a sequel in that like it's set in the same universe in the same cabin just decades later. I really liked that one. I think it had a, a similar DIY energy to Sam Raimi's original movie. Of course, he's got studio funding, so it looks better, but it still felt like he took like a small crew out into the woods and shot a horror movie. And I loved how hyper violent it was. It just kept going. It was relentless from the time it started to the time it ended. It did everything I wanted an evil dead movie to do. And I thought evil dead rise did as well, but not to as great effect. I think that it, they, they, they pulled some of their punches by comparison a little bit, but it's still, an, it still felt like an evil dead movie to me. It, it had a lot of the same kind of dark humor in it and a lot of great, I'm calling them gags, but, you know, like the beats uh, with, you know, punctuated violence and all of that. Yeah, it's it still felt like Evil Dead and I still had a great time watching it. I just think that it, it could have gone a little further. Now, have you watched the show? I've seen a lot of uh, Ash versus Evil Dead, and I really like that too. Yeah, I dig the show. I can't. I used to watch it on Netflix. It, it left Netflix, and then I and then I left Netflix. So I don't know where to watch it. I think I still have like half a season left to watch to get to the ending. But I was loving that show as well. Yeah, I've never had stars, so I could only ever watch it when it was on a thing that I have, uh, and so right. I haven't been able to watch the whole thing yet. But um, yeah, I think that it definitely leans more into the comedy, which is totally. Really fine. I think comedy at this point is Bruce Campbell's strength. If you were to revisit this character and not be quippy, it would be strange. So I like the tone of it. I like the supporting characters. El Jefe. Definitely the sort of Evil Dead story that you would nowadays attribute to uh, Ash. One thing about the new one I wanted to mention is that Ash shows up. Have you heard of this? Do you know about this? Uh, no. So, you know when they find the book yeah. and they find those records and he starts playing the record, right? And he starts playing one of them and it's at like some council. Right. And then the one guy's like, I am now going to read from the book. And in the in that recording, you could hear someone say something to the effect of don't read from the book. I'm (laughs) trying to warn you. And and also saying something to the effect of like, there's three of them, I think. And that was Bruce Campbell. Uh Oh, (laughs) that's fun. The implication is that he is lost somewhere in time. Okay. And he arrived at this meeting because he heard that they were going to be reading from the Necronomicon. He's there trying to stop it. And clearly he, he did not stop it. That's fun. I'll have to I'll have to rewatch and pay pay better attention to that. I know he he made like a brief cameo in Fetty Alvarez's movie, not in the movie proper. It's like a post credit thing. But yeah, he, Bruce is in that one as well. Yeah, I had to be told about that one after the fact. I, I did not uh, catch that. I'll just let you know. <laughs> that, was, that was not on me. But uh, but okay. I mean, it looks like it's time for us to close our Necronomicon for the night. But before we go, Dan, where else can listeners find you out there online? So while it still remains the only viable option for me, I am on Twitter at Dan Cologne. And, you're not, uh, oh, you mean you're on X. On X. It might be X by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. Until a winner uh, prevails over that whole war. I, mean, I, I was just talking to somebody the other day about how it was... It, it, Reminds me of like the Blu-ray HD DVD uh, oh, format yeah, war. Yeah. Like I, I don't know what is going to be the the actual alternative to to Twitter. So until that day comes when that's decided, I'll be on Twitter 
Um, like I said, at Dan Cologne, I'm on Letterboxd at Dan Cologne. Uh, and then you can find uh, all of our Monsters That Made Us uh, episodes at cageclub.me. And I also do another podcast with my friend Shawnee called uh, The Podcast Around the Corner. It is a podcast where we go through the entire filmography of uh, screenwriter, filmmaker, and queen of romantic comedies, Nora Ephron. Yeah, that that's also on the uh, Cage Club Podcast Network as well. You can find every other show that I'm on out there at cageclub.me. I do the titular Cage Club with Joey. Cage has a new movie coming out as of this recording next weekend and then another movie coming out i believe in august so stay tuned for some new episodes of that we're still tackling elvis and i guess the most recent thing we recorded was the mission impossible episode for dead reckoning part one for cruise club the tom cruise section of that so go check that out uh and until next time shop smart shop as smart three that's a magic number it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three may stub at me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?